Thank you, brother. Thank you, Carr family. Such a blessing to have you here with us ministering. Uh, such an encouragement to us. A family in 2021 willing to walk away from their, from their life and to go by faith, serve God in some foreign land, right? I don't seem like a foreign missions field yet to you. A little bit. Amen. Well, we're glad that you're here. Children, you are dismissed. As Obviously, I'm a little late on that. If you'd like to go to the Sunday school downstairs, you can do so. All right. So we'll begin looking at the New Testament temple this week. As I mentioned in the announcements, we, we've seen the tabernacle, the temple, and now we're going to see the New Testament temple. And ultimately, we've already alluded to in previous scripture or previous um, sermons that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament tabernacle and temple. Those things were ways in which God was demonstrating the need, as we discussed, separation, that there was separation between a holy God and a, and a sinful people. Uh, there was a need for um, uh, um, intermediate, uh, intermediator, uh, someone that would uh, mediate for between a holy God and a sinful people. And then lastly, the need for an atonement, a need for a covering, a need to have a sacrifice that was in place of uh, uh, the, the, the means in which our sin and the, the consequences of sin could be covered. And the Old Testament and the daily sacrifices and the yearly sacrifice were all pointing and, and demonstrating to God's people uh, first the seriousness of sin, and ultimately the cost of sin and what would be needed um, to have be reconciled back to God. And Jesus fulfills that. And we see Jesus in his earthly ministry in John chapter 2, verse 19, even declare it in his own words. Jesus in John chapter 2 comes to the temple. And he comes in to Herod's temple grounds and he sees these um, these religious leaders had allowed the courtyard to become a place of a marketplace where they would sell uh, the lambs and blemishes for or lambs without blemishes for a higher value they, they you know and they had a token a temple token that they had to exchange at a unfair exchange rate that was a, a place of, of of they made it into a place of business a place of rob where they were actually taking advantage of of people and the things that God had set forth and so Jesus is recorded here in John chapter 2, cleansing the temple. He gets mad. He overturns tables. He declares, how dare you do this to my father's house? I'm paraphrasing, obviously. And then the Jews come to him and ask this question. So the Jews reply to him, what sign will you show us that you're doing these things? He's like, what authority do you have to do this, to come into the temple and do this? And Jesus answered this way, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. And therefore the Jews said, this temple took 46 years to build. And you will raise it up in three days? This 46 years, this is uh, Herod, the, um, what happened, uh, we left with Solomon's temple last week. Solomon's temple was built. And uh, uh, shortly after Solomon's death, we see as we look through the historical narratives of the Old Testament, we see that the, the kingdom, the 12 tribes of Israel, Israel became divided. 
There was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom automatically went away from the things of God. They didn't have any just kings or anything that any kings that were pursuing God. The southern tribe, the, uh, the tribe near Judah in, in Jerusalem, they 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 had good kings every now and then, they, and they, so they lasted a little longer. But ultimately, God sent prophets, and we can trace this all through the Old Testament. We see this happening warning God's people that they've turned away from God, that their heart has gotten hard and their necks have turned stiff towards the things of God. Remember, God was to be preeminent, the primary focus in their life, in their personal lives and in the nation. And they'd gotten away from things. And and the prophet said God will judge, and he did ultimately judge the, uh, the northern kingdom first, was led away to captivity, and then ultimately the southern kingdom was led away to captivity. And so Solomon's temple was ultimately destroyed and pillaged and pilfered for all of its riches. And the Old Testament continues to, to demonstrate uh, this Babylonian captivity. Uh, occurs for a while, but under uh, Cyrus, the Persian king, uh, a remnant was allowed to go back, Jewish remnant was allowed to go back eventually to Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple. We find that in Habakkuk and Ezra. And some just uh, amazing historical uh, narratives played out for us of what happened in history of God allowing his temple to be rebuilt. It was never the size of Solomon's temple until, as the um, you'll see through through history, um, this place in Jerusalem is all constantly a, a focal point in history. And uh, ultimately what happened is the Romans came in and sacked the, the current uh, p- people that had, had that land and uh, ultimately established Jerusalem and, and made a kind of a, a peace treaty with, with, the, with the Jews, and, and Herod ultimately began to give a lot of money towards rebuilding and remodeling that second temple. And that's the temple that we find Jesus at in his, in his day, coming to the temple. And so we call that Herod's temple, or the Herodian temple. So Jesus comes into this temple, and he says, this temple, or the, the Jews replied, the temple took 46 years, so the remodeling took that long. And you will raise it up in three days. But, we, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. And so when he was raised from the dead, right, three days later, Jesus rose. His disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the statement Jesus had made. And so Jesus is ultimately pointing to the fulfillment, to all those sacrifices, the blood, the blood of goats and lambs were all pointing to that one time when, when the Messiah would show up, the Son of God would show up as the Lamb of God without spot or blemish and, and be the final sacrifice once and for all. And so again, just in a quick review, Jesus is the final. He's the fulfillment of those Old Testament tabernacle and temple ordinances. He's the final sacrifice. The writer of Hebrews says, once and for all. He says in Hebrews 9, 11 through 14, and I'm going to be all over the place, so I apologize to you for those that like to follow along in your Bible. Probably going to go too fast, but I'll try to at least get you the references and you can write them down and, uh, and check me yourself. Hebrews 9, 11 through 14 the writer of Hebrews, again, the writer, of, if you want to know how the Old Testament and the New Testament align with one another, the, the, one of the great New Testament books to go to is the Hebrews because he's writing to uh, the audience of Hebrews and trying to establish to them how Jesus is the better of the Old Testament. He's the fulfillment. And he says this in verse 11, but Christ has appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come in the greater and more perfect tabernacle. 
He's the fulfillment of it. Not made with hands, right? That is not of this creation. He entered the most holy place once and for all time. So he's not talking about a temple here on earth. It's, a, it's a, his, the heavenly, spiritual temple. He entered the most holy place once and for all time. And he did this not by the blood of goats and calves like the Old Testament, but by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. We get to celebrate the Lord's Supper at the close of service. And that's a time for us as Christians to be reminded and remember that Jesus is the, his shed blood is the new covenant. It is through his shed blood that we can have access and be reconciled to God. We do it as a means of remembrance, not as a means of grace, but as a means of remembrance of what he has done for us. The God of very God, the Son of God, came into his creation, took upon flesh, and then he lived that law perfectly, that standard given to Moses. He lived that out perfectly because he was unique. He was the only begotten Son of God. He was from heaven to earth. And that is why Jesus is uniquely qualified to, to have to be the eternal sacrifice, to pay that eternal penalty once and for all. And this is an important key, an important aspect for, for us as we engage people in our culture. What makes Jesus so unique? If Jesus is just a created being, if he's just like you and I, then he would have to pay this eternal, this eternal consequence for eternity. That's what Revelation declares. That if you're outside, if you are not found in the Lamb's book of life, you will pay your penalty for your sin against a holy and just God for eternity. And if Jesus is just like us, if he's just a good teacher, if he's just a man like us, then he would have to pay that, that penalty for all of eternity. But scriptures declare otherwise. Scriptures declare that he defeated death. He defeated the bondage of sin. Three days later, he rose again. Why? Because he's not just a good teacher. He was not just a man. He was the God-man. 100% God, 100% man, who came into his creation to pay the penalty for you and I as our kinsman redeemer. And he could pay that eternal penalty that's demanded one time because he's an eternal being. And he could pay it once and for all. And that's why it's so important. That's why we can't just say, well, I'll agree to disagree on this point. No, we stand firm in the truth of who Jesus is and who he's revealed himself to be and how important it is to understand the eternal reality of the importance of Jesus' eternal, uh, the essentialness of him being eternal to pay that eternal consequence, eternal punishment once and for all. So he entered the most holy place once and for all, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, having obtained an eternal redemption. He goes on for, if the blood of goats and bulls and all and the ashes of a young cow sprinkle those who are defiled and sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, how much more? Will that cleanse our conscience, consciences from dead works so that we can serve the living God? 
If you're in Christ this morning, you know what I'm talking about. His mercies are new every morning. We get to wake up and not wonder if we've done enough good to merit God's favor. We wake up and we go to the foot of the cross. So there's nothing I can do in and of myself. It is through the righteousness of Christ that I come. And we, we are cleansed from the condemnation of the sin that we have if we're in Christ and on the dead works of trying to work ourselves into this good relationship with God. And that we can are freed from that and we can then turn and serve the living God. Amen? It's just amazing. So Jesus is the final sacrifice once and for all. He's the final mediator between God and man. The temple had the Aaronic priests, the tribe of Levi and the, the sons of Aaron were the ones chosen to set apart to, to be the mediator in the temple between a holy God and a sinful people. And they did that, but we see in, as time goes on, those, those priests died, and so other priests would have to come, and the high priest would have to be changed, and, and the, obviously the priests of, uh, would change on a constant basis. But we see it's Jesus being the ultimate fulfillment of the mediator, the great high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now Melchizedek is an Old Testament figure who is described as not having beginning or end. Again, pointing to Jesus' eternality and his deity. He is now after the order not of Aaron, Jesus is, not the high priest after the order of Aaron, but after the order of Melchizedek, who has no beginning or end, who is forever at the right hand of God being our mediator. Paul writes this to Timothy in 1 Timothy, For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind. That man is Christ Jesus. There's only one. There's only one means to God, and it is through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the final sacrifice. He's the final mediator. And he's the final answer, praise be to God, to our separation from our Creator. This is just a wonderful passage of Scripture. I started off as I was preparing the sermon just wanting to give you this first verse of chapter Romans chapter 5. But I just kept reading this. I mean, that's good too, and that's good too. And so we have a, a few verses to go through. But this is so good. This is what Christ has done for us. As we partake of the Lord's Supper this morning, this is what we will remember. He's the final sacrifice. He's the final mediator. He's the final answer to our separation between us and our holy God. Paul writes this, Therefore, since we have been justified, declared righteous, again, not by our own good works, but by the righteousness of Jesus Christ, we have peace with God. We're at peace with Him. Why? Through our Lord, Jesus Christ. We have also obtained access through Him by how? Faith, by belief, by trusting in the promises revealed to us in Holy Scripture. We have been obtained access through Him by faith into this grace. This grace is this powerful, just amazing word that we just can't get over as Christians. At least I hope you can't. This unmerited favor extended to us in spite of who we are. I don't know about you, but every day I prove that I don't deserve what God has given me. But it's given to me. Unmerited. I, it's just given to me through the, what Christ has done. It's an, ex- an expression of God's love. We have obtained access through Him by faith into this grace in which we stand. 
We stand in this grace. We stand under the shadow of the cross. And we get to boast in this hope that is brought to us. This hope of this eternal life that is to come where there will be no more sorrow, no more pain, no more tears, no more sickness, no more COVID-19, no more Spanish flu. The hope that we have as Christians is found in what Christ has purchased for us. And we, we boast in this hope of the glory of God, of God's glory being demonstrated in this just wonderful, just amazing, I can't come up with enough words to express how just beautiful the gospel is. And it all demonstrates God's glory. Who He is, holy, just, loving, and merciful are all demonstrated in what is being played out in human history. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also boast in our afflictions because we know that the afflictions that we have produces endurance, and endurance produces proven character, and proven character produces this hope. Beloved, we all go through trials. And I know lots of you in this room are going through tremendous trials. But this is where we cling to the promises of Scripture and we have to understand that they're not not being wasted. God is using those in your life and 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 through those afflictions and and trials, that endurance as we look and keep our eyes and focus on God through those times produces that proven character, that, that integrity that produces, ultimately produces hope. And this hope will not disappoint us. The hope of what is to come. The hope that God is, may not deliver you from your trials, but He will certainly be with you through your trials. This hope will not disappoint us because why? God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Another amazing truth, this salvation that occurs when we encounter our need, when the Holy Spirit comes and the gospel is preached and you understand your need to, to, to turn and from your own, trying to establish your own way of, of getting to God through your own righteousness or your religious works or, or even denying God's ex- existence and reality altogether. When you turn from those things and embrace and turn towards the Lord Jesus Christ and, and call out to Him in, in a moment of faith and confess with your mouth and you believe in your heart that God has indeed sent Him to save you from what you truly deserve as an expression of His love to you. As you do that, what's happening is this amazing supernatural event is happening being born from above being born again jesus said to nicodemus in john chapter 3 you must be born again to enter the kingdom of god this is a spiritual work done by the by the holy spirit who not only saves us and makes us born again, makes us a new creation in Christ, spiritually speaking, but then the promise of Scripture is that He comes and indwells us. He indwells the heart of every believer. He makes you born again and then dwells within you. And so what does that make a Christian if God is dwelling in them? The temple. We've seen 
the tabernacle, God's dwelling place during the time of Moses and the children of Israel's wanderings in the, children, in the wilderness for 40 years. We've seen Solomon's temple, the permanent structure built on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem in the Old Testament, and then we come to the New Covenant, the New Testament temple. It looks like this. I was going to do a selfie of everybody, but I didn't know if everybody would want to be blasted online, so I thought I'd just play it safe and stick with the stock photo, but it looks like this. This is God's temple from the New Testament perspective. If you're in Christ this morning, you are the temple of God. The church is the temple of God because the church is not a building. The church is not an institution. The church is people. Paul references this when he's telling husbands about loving our wives. I don't know about all all that. But husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Christ didn't come and give himself for a building or for an institution with a nice placard on on the street corner. Jesus gave himself for people. He died for you. Christ's love demonstrated his love to the church by laying his life down for it. And that's what Christ now calls husbands to do to their wives. This wonderful verse in Acts chapter 9 also demonstrates the reality that the church is not of uh, institution, but uh, of people. In Acts chapter 9, there's just a summary statement here. It says, that, So the church throughout all of Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was strengthened. So he references the church here, and we can see that this church was not these different institutional places, right? The church was the people who went out to back home and, and began to, to call other people and just proclaim the gospel. And by doing that, the church was spreading because it wasn't about a building and It was about people hearing the gospel, believing and receiving Jesus and being added to the church, which is Christ's body. And so they went home, Judea, Galilee, and Samaria. The church had peace and was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit who indwelled inside of the church, the individual people that collectively represents the church, Christ's body. And in doing so, it increased in numbers. The church increased in numbers. And I'm sure you join with me as we pray, God, may God continue to build his church. May Christ continue to add to its numbers. So the church is the New Testament. The people who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. This is another powerful passage of Scripture in Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3, demonstrating to us what I was talking about, the supernatural um, act of being born again. What happens when we proclaim the gospel? When I proclaim the gospel, my prayer has always been that the Holy Spirit would, would convict you of your need if you're outside of Jesus. If you convict you of your need to turn from everything else and receive and believe in Christ alone and his accomplished work, that he would... Re- reveal that to you and that you would be caused you would then cry out to call out to Jesus and believe and receive Jesus as Savior and again 
what I said earlier, the supernatural work is not something that I've come up with. It's found in Scripture. It's found in Titus chapter 3, what's happening there. And this is another powerful verse, if you want to take note of this, because it, it shows our triune God masterfully and how, how all three persons have a, a different role in saving someone. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit all have a role. And we see this in this passage here. But when the kindness of God the Father, our Savior, and His love for mankind appeared, right? He demonstrated His love by sending His Son. We know that. He saved us, not by works of righteousness that we have done. Again, not by what we can do and muster in our own strength, but according to His mercy. Mercy is the other side of the coin of grace. Grace is unmerited favor. Mercy is withholding what we truly deserve. He's done this, but according to his mercy, through what? Through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. When we call out to God, we are born again. We are regenerated. We are made a new creature in Christ. So we see the God the Father loving us, allowing the Holy Spirit to regenerate us, make us new, reconcile us back to the Father as we believe and receive Christ and His accomplished work. We are now seen in the righteousness of Christ and not in our own sinfulness because of this, what the Spirit does in this regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. And this is done through what? He poured out His Spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. God was able to do that through the sacrifice given and offered on the cross over 2,000 years ago. He poured out His Spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified, again, being declared righteous by His unmerited favor, by His grace, we become heirs. Christ is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise, and because we're in Christ, we are co-heirs with Christ. It's amazing. Our salvation is from a promise, and not of our own works. We become heirs with the hope of eternal life. Tara often says to other believers, well, you better get used to me because you're stuck with me forever. And that's true. the eternal life to come, that is our hope. Paul even says outright to the Corinthian church, he's writing, and if you study the Corinthian church, especially in the first letter, you'll see that they're dealing with a whole host of problems. There's sexual immorality going on. There's divisiveness going on. Some people are claiming Paul. Some people are proclaiming Paulus. And so there's divisiveness. And, and we see in Scripture that the one thing that makes us different in this world is our unity. And so we fight for unity. And that's, that's what we're trying to do. And so he's saying, look, you guys are not, you're, you, we need to fix some things. And so he admonishes this church in the first letter to the Corinthian church, and, and he says one of his admonishments is this, this, don't you yourselves know that you are God's temple? The Holy Spirit, the God of very gods, indwells us. We are God's temple. And I admit, it's so easy to forget about that and just go off and entertain the pleasures that this world has to offer for me, myself, and I, and so forget 
that God has done this marvelous supernatural work. And now we are the temple of God. We are God's dwelling place in this earth. We are the light. We are the salt of the earth. God desires to use us to reach this lost and dying world. And Paul says, don't you know you're the God's temple and the Spirit of God lives inside of you? What a great reminder this morning. That the temple, the sacrifice, this, this, um, the old covenant perspective of the temple is this ceremonial worship, right? They would worship God by doing these ceremonies and all these sacrifices, the sacrificial worship. And then the New Testament perspective, it goes, transforms from this ceremonial worship to a relational worship. We're now reconciled back to God. God dwells inside of us and we have the opportunity and the benefactor of being God's children and being relational, being adopted to where we cry out, Abba, Father. It's the new covenant, the new covenant perspective, and I just want to end with this. It's a, I say, perspective or paradigm. A paradigm is like, kind of like the lens that we look at life through, right? And as you encounter Christ, the, the, the transformation that the Holy Spirit desires to do in you, with you is, is to change your paradigm, to change your lens in which you're looking at this world and this life through. Because it's no longer about us. It's no longer about our happiness. It's about giving God glory for what he's done. And living for him. And so no longer do we, do we do sacrificial worship. We have a relational worship. And so that's when Paul says in Romans 12, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. Live for him. Live for God's glory. Look what he's done. It's the new covenant perspective. Change day by day, step by step. Allow, as we talked about Galatians, Walking in the Spirit, being filled by the Spirit, allowing the Spirit to produce fruit in our lives because He dwells inside of us and desires to transform us. It's the new covenant perspective. And that occurred radically in John chapter 4. Jesus is walking through Samaria. Samaria. He encounters this woman at the well. And we know through the story of the woman at the well that this woman was an outcast of the outcast. She, she was at a well by herself from her town in Samaria there. Usually women traveled together and did those things by herself. And so she was, a, would someone say, shaded or jaded. And as you read the, the story, you understand that she, she had not just one husband, but many, right? She was broken, made some mistakes, just like the rest of us. She encounters Jesus at the well here. And um, Jesus calls her out. She's like, he's like, you only have one husband, but you had many and all that stuff. And so she kind of, at this awkward moment, changes the subject and says, hey, so, so you, you seem like you, you know what you're talking about. You're a teacher, you're a rabbi. So the, us Samaritans, the, the northern kingdom, when they broke off, they established their own temple in the north. We, we worship here. And you, 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 the Jews, you, you guys still worship down in Jerusalem. When the Messiah comes, where will we worship Messiah? She has this question, right? Is he going to split himself? Because she's thinking in that Old Testament paradigm that God's dwelling was in this temple made with hands. And so she asks him, where will you worship? 
And Jesus gives her and is recorded for us this radical transformation of what truly occurs in salvation, that this ceremonial worship in a certain location now becomes a spiritual worship and a relational worship. His answer to her was this, Believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain and there in Samaria nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. And we worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit, capital S, and in truth. This radical transformation when we encounter the gospel message and we believe and receive Jesus, the Spirit of God makes us new, born again. It comes in and dwells inside of us and now we have, uh, are made children of God and we can worship God at any time because we are the dwelling place of God. We can worship the Father in spirit because the Spirit has made us a new creature in Christ. But notice... This worship still remains based in and foundation. The foundation of this worship has remained in God's truth. Too often, Christians get carried away with spiritual experiences. They're seeking the next emotional, spiritual high. And truth tends to be disregarded. And we see here Jesus saying, no, yes, it's a spiritual thing, and yes, spiritual things happen, and it's, so, it's supernatural in that regard, but it's always bound and foundationed in the, the truth that God has given us, his revealed truth, right? Jesus cried out in his high priestly prayer, Father, sanctify them, make them set apart through your truth. Your word is truth. We worship the Father in spirit, yes but also based in truth. The hour is coming and is now here. This is what us in the New Testament era, what the benefit of knowing what God has done, we can now worship God in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship Him. So God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. And so what does that look like? How do we worship him in spirit and in truth? So tomorrow, when you have a choice to either gratify your flesh or make a decision that's going to glorify God, that's a form of worship. We come here, we sing songs. We take time out to gather together with God's people in a form of worship, to sing, to open up God's word, to, to preach God's word, to proclaim God's word. That's a form of worship. But you can worship him, as Paul would say, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God. You can worship him with your spirit or in, the, in the means of how you interact with this world, your choices that you choose, whether to gratify self, gratify others. Again, choosing to abide in the spirit or abide in Jesus, walk in the spirit, right? Denying self, carrying our cross, dying to ourself, and our and wanting to live for God, for what he's done for us, those are all forms of this worship that we can do. So we don't have to go to Mecca. We don't have to go to Jerusalem. You can worship your God in spirit and in truth anytime you so desire. Praise be to God.
I pray that's you this morning. I pray if it's not, that you're outside of this, that you would, that the Spirit is indeed convicting you of your need to, to believe and receive Jesus as your Savior so that you too can have this amazing hope that's promised to us in what Christ has done. We're going to go ahead and partake of the Lord's Supper now. Um, Brother Bill, if you mind coming up and playing some music as we have the, the gentleman come forth and prepare the elements and pass them out.